Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to look at the book of Philippians, and the theme of the book of Philippians is joy in the gospel. Um, Come on in, Carrie. Joy... That's snow. <laughs> the The word joy or rejoice shows up a lot in Philippians, and the word gospel shows up a lot. So really the theme is the joy in the gospel. But before we dive into Philippians, I want to just kind of show you the background. I don't know if you remember a few, oh, about a year ago, um, when we went through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, um, I had a weird title for a um, one of my sermons was called A Fashionista, a Snake Girl, and a Prison Worker. I don't know if you remember that. Those are the three people that were the founding members of the church in Philippi. Um, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, we, we'll just turn there real quick. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is on um, his, his second missionary journey. And if you remember, he wanted to go to Asia. But the Holy Spirit said no, and then he has the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come over here, Macedonia is where Philippi is. And so uh, I'm going to kind of paraphrase. Um, Come on in, Jonathan. Um, We're not going to look at the whole passage of Scripture, but I'm just going to kind of give you the big chunks of of Acts 16. Um, Verses 11 through verses 15 is where Paul goes into Philippi, and he finds the fact that there's no synagogue, so there's not enough Jewish males to comprise a synagogue. You had to have two Jewish ma- ten Jewish males to comprise a synagogue. So he goes down to the river, and a bunch of women are down there, and he begins to preach the gospel to the women down there. And a woman named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth, gets saved. And so she was probably, for the lack of a better term, a fashionista. She was a fashion lady. She was probably wealthy. Um, she's the first convert. She opens her large house for the church and then if you keep on going verses 16 through 24 you have this demon possessed girl that keeps following paul around and the king james version said she had a python spirit literally in the original language it means she had a python spirit she and the best way we can understand that is that she was possessed by a demon that somehow was related to the the snake python in the greek culture and so she was a slave girl she was being exploited by her owners and then Paul says, you know, turns around and says, I, I command you to come out of her. The demon is exercised. So who, who, what's, the, what's the difference between the first two converts in Philippi? Number one, you have a rich lady. Number two, you have a slave girl. And then number three, you have a prison worker. Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. They begin singing. There's an earthquake. The jailer says, I'm going to kill myself because everybody's going to escape. And Paul says, don't kill yourself. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And so he gets saved. So the first three people that, that are the church of Philippi are this fashionista Lydia, a rich, wealthy businesswoman, an exploited slave girl that had a demon come out of her, and a blue-collar prison worker. Now, does that, does that normally happen, that a church is birthed with that type of diversity? So it's the beauty of diversity, that this church was, was birthed. Nobody in their wildest dreams would have put those three people together for a church, would they? Only the gospel creates that type of community, that type of diversity in, in unity. 
And so that's how the church is, 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 is established. Now, Paul is in prison in Rome. This is not in your notes, but he's in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to the Philippian church. And so this is one of his what we call prison letters. He's writing from prison back to the church. So let's actually turn to the book of Philippians, and, and we're going to take it in some chunks here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to look at all three all four chapters. We're not going to look at every verse, obviously, because it's going to take us forever to do that. But I want to just draw out some things. So let's start in chapter 1. And let's just read. This is how Paul normally starts all of his letters. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy. So he's including Timothy with him in this. Servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Philippians really gives us the three groups of people that are in a local church. Do you guys see them there? Who's the first group there? To all the saints. That, that's just the, all the believers, the congregation. We are all the saints. But then who's the next group? With the overseers or the elders and the deacons so in a church what are you supposed to have members elders and deacons and we have that here at Emmanuel we've got the members we've got the elders and we have the deacons and so you see all three of those groups there in Philippi so Paul is addressing he could have just said I'm addressing the entire church but he makes a distinction there, saying I'm addressing the entire church the saints but within the entire group there's the elders and there's the deacons okay and so let's talk about joy in the gospel. Why, do, why is Philippians joy in the gospel? Well, let's look at verses 3 through 5. And normally what Paul does when he starts a letter, he either does one of two things. When we looked at Ephesians, he started with the blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, he's starting with thanksgiving. So he's thanking God for this church. And so here, here's what he says in verse 3. Um, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making, prayer, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So what is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, I'm thanking God for you. And how is his prayer marked? My prayer is marked with joy because of your partnership with me in the gospel. Now, where's Paul? He's in prison. He's in prison. Now, think about this. If you were in prison, would you be a joyful person? Probably not. But all throughout this letter, Paul is excited. He's joyful. He loves this church. And the big thing for him is, I, I have joy in the fact that you guys are partnering with me in the gospel, okay? Now, verse 6 is probably the foundational verse in one of the foundational verses in chapter 1. And it's probably one that you guys are very, very familiar with. So let's look at verse 6. This really teaches the whole idea of, of eternal security. So let's read this. I am sure of this. I think some translations say I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what's Paul confident of? God started the work. What did he start? The work of salvation. Is he going to complete it? 
Yes, he's going to complete it. And Paul says, I am I'm confident of this. I'm sure of this. God started the work. He's not just going to leave you hanging. If God started salvation in you, he's going to bring it to completion. Now, let's talk about eternal security here for a moment. Um, I kind of put a definition. Those whom God the Father has elected and those for whom Jesus the Son has died and those for whom the Holy Spirit has given the new birth can neither totally nor finally lose their salvation but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Okay? This doctrine does not say everyone who professes faith will necessarily be saved to the end. It's only those that have the possession of true faith. So some people use the terminology, once saved, always saved. I was having a conversation with somebody once, once. That's not a good way to put it. Once saved, always saved. I was talking to a person today, and he was telling me about a family member. And he says he's really concerned about his family member because this person says, I know all the truth. I know what the Bible says. I just don't want to change. I want to keep living in a life of sin because I accepted Christ when I was 20 and I know I'm going to heaven, but I want to live however I want to live. And he may have even used the terminology, once saved, always saved. Is that statement true? Yes. If you're truly saved, will you always be saved? But what's the kicker? How you define this word, saved. Those who are truly saved, i.e., they have truly been regenerated, they've been given a new birth, they've been saved by grace, God has done a work in their heart, those whom that has happened to, they will be eternally saved. Can there be people who profess faith in Christ that may not be saved? Can somebody be baptized? Can somebody go forward at an altar call? Can somebody go through confirmation? Can somebody even say, I'm a Christian, and really not be saved? Yes. Now, we, don't, we can't look into people's hearts and, and make that judgment. But what Paul is saying here is what? If God has begun the work in you, what's He going to promise to do? He's going to complete it. So I just want to take us on a little journey of verses that teach the fact that God's going to do that. So let's look at some of these verses. John 6. This is out of the mouth of Jesus. John 6, 37-39. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not, what? Never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Is Jesus going to lose those who are truly his? Is he going to cast out those who are truly his? Okay, let's go to John 10, 27 through 30. Whoops. I'm going backwards. There we go. This is again Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Just stop real quick there. That word never perish in the original language is a really strong way of saying never, ever, ever. Okay? I mean, if you could translate it in English, it would be like Jesus saying, they will never, ever perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you've kind of got this double grip. We're in the grip of Jesus' hand, and we're in the grip of the Father's hand. And who can snatch us out? No one. 
Romans 8, 35 to 30, 39. You're probably very familiar with this one as well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Rhetorical question, right? And then he keeps answering the question, and he gives all these lists of options of things that could possibly separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, there's that word again, I am sure, the same thing he said in Philippians 1.6, I am sure that neither death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could probably just stop right there and say that that definitively answers it. One more passage, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And look at verse 4. To an inheritance, what's that? Heaven. What, what's this inheritance? What, how does he describe it? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is going to ensure that we get to heaven. Okay, that's the, the first side of the coin. Eternal security. We, we establish from these passage scriptures, those that are truly saved will be saved, right? God who started the work will complete it. Okay. The flip side of the coin, perseverance of the saints. And let's look at this passage in Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what do we have to do? We have to... Endure to the end. Now, before we stop and say, well, that makes it sound like everything we just looked at is thrown out of the water. If I have to endure to the end, that means it's maybe up to me. I thought I was eternally secure. I thought I was in Jesus' grip. I thought nothing could separate me. And so if I have to endure to the end, then, then, then it's all up to me, right? Let me ask the question. Is it all up to you? Do we have to endure to the end? Yes, only those that make it to the end will be saved. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Okay. But what did Paul just say? I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Carry to completion. So here's the issue. The teaching of perseverance of the saints says that God, by His grace, will work in us to ensure that we endure. We have to endure to the end, but God's going to make sure we do. Does that make sense? He's going to work in us the faith, the grace, the ability to be able to sustain ourselves to the end. Let's look at some passages of scriptures that teach that. Just so you don't take my word for it. What does 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9 say? Our Lord Jesus, who will what? Sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is faithful to do what? Sustain us to the end. How, do we, how does God sustain us to the end? By us enduring to the end. But who's the one that sustains us? Do we sustain ourselves or does God do it? God does it. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Now, Paul, what do you mean by that? What does Paul say? I worked hard. I persevered. But was it me that was doing it? No, it was God's grace in me. So God gave him the ability to, to persevere. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Surely do what? Keep you blameless to the end. One more passage. Let's look at Jude. There's no verse. There's no chapter. There's just like it's Jude 24 and 25. There's just one, one chapter. Now to him who is able to keep you from what? Stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all, all time and now and forever. Amen. So we are eternally secure in the grip of Jesus, but by His grace, He's going to ensure that we endure to the end. That's what Paul says there. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through to the end. Now let me just give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, because I think this is helpful. This is probably what you've said many times. Charles Spurgeon said this, If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my Fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. If it ever should come to pass. So what's he saying? If it was up to me to keep myself in God's grace, what would we do? We'd fall away all the time. But God is the one that sustains us. So we've got this powerful passage here in Philippians that, I mean, I think this is a great promise in your heart to take to heart. Paul is confident of this. I am sure of this, that he who began again working you, he will bring it to completion. Now, are there days where you don't feel like that? I sure don't feel like I'm, I'm walking the way God wants me to walk. But if you're truly his, what's he going to do? He's going to work in you that grace to make sure that you endure to the end. Now, let's talk about the advancement of the gospel. In verses 12 through 17, Paul's in prison. But something very unique about him being in prison. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, i.e. being in prison, has really served to do what? What does your Bible say there? Advance the gospel. That's weird. Paul being in prison has served to advance the gospel. That doesn't make any sense. Wasn't Paul the greatest missionary ever? Wouldn't it make more sense for Paul to be out planting churches and going around and doing all this stuff? Why would him being in prison be the advancement of the gospel? Well, let's keep reading. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So two things have happened since Paul's in prison. One is, what do you think Paul's going to do? He's going to share the gospel with everybody he comes in contact with. So it says the whole imperial guard knows about Jesus. And that served as a motivation for the Philippian church to be what? To be bold. If Paul's in prison, if our pastor is in prison and he's sharing the gospel, that gives us the boldness to share the gospel with everybody around us. So really, Paul's imprisonment has given them the boldness to be, to be evangelistic, to go share the gospel with lost people, which is kind of countercultural. 
You think about like closed countries like China and places like that where the gospel is advancing a lot more powerfully than it is here. But what, what's happening? People have to meet underground. They're, they're in prison. Um, a lot of times pastors. And, and those closed countries, those persecuted countries, there's more of a passion and a zeal for the gospel than we have because um, for whatever reason, you know, we're too comfortable here. Let's just put that in America. Or you think we're too comfortable here? Do we have an urgency here? Is anybody threatened to be put in jail for speaking about Jesus? Maybe not now. Maybe in the near future. Who knows? But it's just amazing that Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel. Now, Paul's got a predicament. Let's talk about Paul's predicament. Because this is towards the end of Paul's life. He's lived a long, faithful, fruitful life. He's in prison. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. I mean, we know from history that Paul was beheaded. But he doesn't know. When he's writing this, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So let's look at verses 21. This is another key passage. Verse 21 is probably one that you, that you guys have a lot. There's a lot of passages in Philippians a lot of people memorize. Probably chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 1, verse 21 is probably one of those other ones. But here we go. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what's Paul's predicament? I really want to die, because if I die, I'll see Jesus. But I know that he's not done with me yet, and so he still has me on this earth, and it's for the purpose of ministering to you. So I'm torn between the two. I'd really love to die and go see Jesus, but I know I'm still here. So what does he say? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So no matter what happens to Paul, whether he's beheaded or whether he lives a a lot longer, what's his ultimate goal? I want Jesus. That's an interesting way to put that. For me to live is Christ. That grammatically sounds funny, doesn't it? For me to live is Christ, which makes it very powerful that Christ is our life. He's our sustenance. He's our joy. Everything is about living for Jesus. Now think about the joy and the contentment that Paul had in prison to say, they can behead me. It just makes me get to Jesus faster. I mean, can you imagine that, that statement? I, I think about, um, you know, what, what's really scary is um, persecution. Okay? I'm, I'm willing to die for Jesus. I, I have that established in my own heart. What's harder for me is if they paraded my family in front of me and killed them and made me live. That's a harder thing to think about. I know of some pastors and their families in closed countries that have already made the determination as a family that they're willing to die. It's a non-negotiable. The wife says, if they shoot you or they shoot me, we're going to die for Christ. And our kids are willing to die for Christ. That's scary. I mean, that's that's a world we don't live in. Um, we, we, We often don't think in those types of terms, you know, dying for Jesus, being in prison for Jesus. So it's hard for us to put us ourselves in that world. But in a way, what does Jesus say? Do we have to die for Jesus? Every day. What does he say? Take up your cross daily. Die to yourself and follow me. 
So every day we're really dying to ourselves and we're living for Jesus. But just think about the joy of Paul here. I don't know what's coming. They could come in any minute and cut my head off. But the most important thing to me is Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Because if I keep living, Christ is my life. If I die, I get to see Him sooner. Either way, He's my joy. Those are some powerful words. That's what motivated this church to be evangelistic. They're like, my goodness, if Paul is, is that joyful in the face of death, that gives us the motivation to go share Christ with people, to tell people about Jesus, to tell people about this Christ that gives us joy. Okay. Now let's look at Paul's charge to the church. I think verse 27 is, is, is very parallel to what we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is kind of Paul's charge to the church. This is what he wants them to do. He's kind of established from the very beginning, um, I'm in prison, I'm confident God's going to complete this work for me to live as, as Christ, to die as gain. But look at verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of what? The gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. Now, I want you to pay attention to this terminology. That you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now I hear that, that I still have. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And he talks about this whole idea of, of being linked together as soldiers, walking side by side, lockstep. And the word he uses there, he says that you're of one mind. I think the NIV translates that attitude. That's a key word that shows up in Philippians 11 times, the word attitude or mind. Have the same mind. Have the same attitude. Be united. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel so that you're united together, standing firm for the gospel. And what's that going to bring? What does he say? It's going to bring suffering. Now, why would standing up for Jesus bring suffering? I thought the world loved Christians. I thought when you became a Christian, your life would be easy. There would be no problems. And not only that, thanks a lot, Paul. What does he say there? It's been appointed. Or it's been granted to you to, to suffer. God's given that to you as a gift. Here's your gift. You get to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But do we suffer alone? What is he saying here? You're together, standing firm, side by side. Okay, now let's get into chapter 2. And remember that 27 is the key there. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So how is this going to play itself out? Chapter 2, Christ-like humility. Now, I could spend all night preaching or teaching um, chapters 2, 1 through 11 because it's so rich, but I want to just kind of walk through this a little bit slowly. Here's the first thing that we see in, in, in gospel-centered humility. Number one, the gospel empowers our Christ-like humility. Look at verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Now, the word, does your start there, if there is any? Literally, the translation should be since. Really, the, the way it should be translated in the original language is, these things are true. Since these things are true, you can have joy. Chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 1, 
He lists four certain gospel blessings in Christ. These things are true. The gospel empowers these things in your life. These are true of you if you're a Christian. So what's the first thing he says there? If there's any what? Encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement really means security. Is there any security or encouragement you have in Christ? Now let's talk about what it means to be in Christ. That's Paul's favorite term in a lot of his, his, his writings, in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. What does Romans 8.1 say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Does that give you great security? I'm not under condemnation anymore. My sins aren't held against me. I am in Christ. I am protected in Christ. He is my, my solid rock. I, I am in Him. So that's the first thing there. What's the second thing he says there? Comfort from love. Whose love is it talking about there? Is it our love for each other or is it Christ's love for us? It's Christ's love for us. We are comforted from Christ loving us. So when you're in Christ, you're secure. When you're loved by Christ, you're comforted. And then he says, a joint participation with the Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, what does that say? For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So think about these blessings you have in Christ. I'm secure in Christ. I'm comforted by the love of Christ. I've got the Holy Spirit of Christ in me. And then notice what else he says there in verse 1. Any affection and sympathy. You know what the word for affection is there? A gut-wrenching compassion. It's the same word that was used in Matthew 9.36. When Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. His guts spilled out. So, so verse 1, Paul's saying here, Okay, Philippians, here's how you can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Realize who you are. Number one, you have a security of being in Christ. You've got the love of Christ. You've got the affection of Christ. And He's given you the Holy Spirit. And because He's given you these things, now here's what I want you to do. So what's the next thing Paul does there? We've got the gospel exhorting us to Christ-like humility. Because these are true, because you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the love of Christ, you've got the gospel, here's what I want you to do. What does Paul say in verse 2? Complete my joy. Make me joyful. That's really what his, his request is. I want to be joyful. And here's how here, a pastor in prison talking back to his church says, here's how you guys can make me joyful. Here's what I really want you guys to do to make me joyful. And what does he say? Having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others so he gives four gospel exhortations in here of how we can make his joy complete and the first thing he says there is being of the same mind again it's that word attitude does your translation say maybe have the same attitude there at the beginning of verse um, two complete my joy by having the same mind says same mind it's that word that shows up 10 times in philippians attitude thinking alike the same values. 
like-mindedness as opposed to being differently minded. What's one of the beauties of a church? Why, why are we gathered together as a church? We are like-minded. We have what? The same Savior. We have the same Lord. We have the same desires. We have the same passions. We have the same values, the same goals. We can all come together around Christ. So he says, have that same attitude. And not only the same attitude, what else does he say? Well, he says the way we can do that is we can keep on loving one another. Have the same mind, having the same love. Keep on continually loving one another. Now, what does love look like? Well, in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, that should be 1 John, I'm sorry, not John 3, 16. It's like, that doesn't sound like John 3, 16. It's 1 John 3, 16 and 18. John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And that's the way we're to love each other. It's, it's easy to say, I love you, and just have it be a word. What's John saying here? It needs to be shown in demonstrable action. It needs to be backed up by concrete action. If you see somebody in need and your, your heart closes, you're not really loving that person. Okay? He also says, be one-souled. Being in full accord. They were in one accord. They all got packed into one Honda. It wasn't a Civic. It wasn't a CRV. It was one accord. That's a dumb preacher joke from the old. They were in, but it really means one sold. I want your souls to be knit together. Now go back up to chapter one, verse twenty-seven. What did Paul say just just a few verses earlier? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I want you to be one soul, one mind, knit together, standing side by side, moving forward for the joy of the gospel. That's going to make me happy. That's going to make my joy complete. Love one another. And then he says one purpose. Be, Be ready for one purpose. One mind. Now, he also talks about our ambition here. What does he say there in verse 3? Do nothing, do nothing from what? Rivalry or conceit. It's almost like he's using a double negative there. No, not ever. Don't ever do anything from rivalry or conceit or greed. The King James, I think, calls conceit vain glory. Seeking the glory of yourself. What's, what's empty conceit? What's, being, what's conceited? Puffing yourself up to think that you are this great person. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't be jealous. Don't have rivalries. Don't puff yourself up and be so full of yourself. Don't be conceited. As a matter of fact, Galatians 5.26 says what? Let us not become conceited provoking one another and envying one another. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. That's really what he's saying. But, there's a but there, the second half of verse 3, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Our humility. Humility. In that culture, and I think in our culture too, humility is a sign of weakness. That doesn't make any sense to the world. What does the world say? 
be conceited, get to the top, do whatever you have to do to, to, jump, to jump over people's backs, to stomp on them, to get to the top. Paul says, no, really, what you need to do is you need to count other people more significant. More significant. That word significant there means surpassing. People surpass you. You're not the center of the universe. Other people need to be the focus of, of your attention. And then he says there, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Don't be so... Basically, if we could put a nutshell, Paul's saying don't let the universe think... Don't think you're the center of the universe. It's not about you. It's not about your needs and your desires and puffing yourself up and being all that. Really, it's the, the, the Christian life, the living in a manner worthy of the gospel is others-centered. It's walking in humility. It's walking in love. It's being um, focused on other people. Now, here's where he's going to shift gears, and this gets real scary. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I think the NIV says your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. There's the word attitude again. Does that scare you? So Paul's like, okay, let's just distill it down here and make it real simple. Ultimately, you need to be like Jesus. You need to have the attitude of Jesus. Okay, Paul, that's great. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. He's going to give a sermon illustration. So, verses 6 through 11 Paul is going to give us how the gospel exemplifies for us Christ-like humility. Have the attitude of Jesus. Okay, what does that look like? Well, okay, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you what Jesus did. So what we have here, it's very interesting. I don't know if you know this, but verses 6 through 11, it's an ancient hymn that the early church would sing. And there's two purposes in this hymn. The first purpose is to instruct us. In this hymn, there's a lot of who Christ is. There's a lot of teaching on just who Jesus is. But secondly, why do you give a sermon illustration? It's to inspire. Paul has just said what? Be Christ-like. So I'm going to give you the ultimate example. I'm going to show you Jesus. And you're going to learn about Jesus, but this is going to inspire you. This is going to motivate you to, have, to be humble when I show you what Christ has done. So it's to instruct us and it's to inspire us to have this same Christ-like humility. And what we see here are three voluntary ways that Jesus exemplifies humility. Now, why do I use the word voluntary? If you look at the original language, these things that Jesus does, the, the, the wording in the original language makes it sound like Jesus voluntarily did these. Nobody was forcing Jesus to do these things. He voluntarily did these. So when we think about loving one another, yeah, I can, can you force people to love? Can you force people to be unified? Not really. It has to be voluntary, right? It has to come from a heart of compassion. It has to come from the Holy Spirit working in them. So we can be legalistic and create a bunch of rules to make people be loving, but is that going to work? Okay, God the Father could have forced Jesus to come down to earth, but that would have messed up the relationship in the Trinity. Jesus voluntarily did these things. So let's see what Jesus voluntarily did. First of all, he submitted himself to the Father's will. Let's look and see verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that's interesting. 
He was in the form of God. That word form is the word morphe. Here's the amazing truth. I want you to think about the, the progression here, okay? Here's the progression. Where does Jesus, where does it start? Where's Jesus when, when Paul starts this hymn? Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is God. He's the exact nature of God. He's always been God. John 17, 5, what does that say? It says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Hebrews 1, 3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So Jesus is equal with God. Jesus has everything God is, Jesus is. But notice what it says next. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, He did not greedily seek His own advantage. Think about what Jesus could have done. Did Jesus have every right to say, I have all the rights and privileges of God. I have everything at my disposal. I don't need to go down to earth. Why in the world would I go down there to those lousy people that are sinners and become one of them and live among them? I deserve to stay here and have the angels worshiping me. Now, Jesus had every right to do that, right? But what was his attitude? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to greedily hang on to what's mine. I'm going to actually take it a step further. So this hymn goes into a downward progression. Jesus leaves heaven. He voluntarily leaves heaven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says what? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he was in heaven, had everything, yet for, the, for your sake he became poor so that by... so that you by his poverty might become rich. Okay, now let's look and see what else Jesus does. He voluntarily made himself of no reputation. Verse 7, being made, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, okay, he leaves heaven. What does he, what what does Jesus do? He, the incarnation. Now he doesn't, He doesn't cease to be God. He just adds humanity to his divinity. So Jesus comes as the infinite God-man. So the progression comes, I'm going to come down to earth as a man. Now, what could Jesus have done if he came down to earth? I'm going to come down to earth. I'm not going to be born in Bethlehem. No way. I'm not going to be born in a stable. I'm not going to be born to some backwood virgin and her husband who's a carpenter, especially in Jerusalem. I'm I'm going to come in Rome I'm going to come in chariots. I'm going to have the people attending me. I'm going to announce that I'm here. I'm going to come as the king and set up my palace so that everybody can come and worship me. Does Jesus do that? What does it say? What does it say there? And being found in human, oh, being born in the likeness, being made nothing, taking the form of a slave, a servant. That's that's radical. The form of a slave. Now, in that society in Philippi, those, a lot of the people in that church were slaves, so they would have understood what it means to be a slave. You give up rights. You give up privileges. Jesus voluntarily, think about this, Jesus voluntarily stripped himself of all those rights to come and serve. That's amazing. Matthew 20, 26 through 28, Jesus said, It shall not be so among you, whoever would be great among you, 
must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve as a slave. Now think about the progression. He started out in heaven. Okay, He comes down to earth as a man, not just any old man, the God man, but then he comes as a slave. Now where's the lowest progression? Not just a slave, but he became obedient to death. What kind of death? Did he die just a normal death? No, death on a cross, on a cross. So the third thing we see here is that he became a man and Christ voluntarily humbled himself to the point of extreme humiliation, the cross. Now let me just tell you about the word cross. If you and I were sitting at a dinner table and one of your kids said, somebody went and was going to go die on the cross, you would have to wash their mouth out with soap because in polite Roman society, the word cross was a vulgarity. It was considered a cuss word. So the very fact that that's where Jesus went, in that culture, the cross was observed for criminals and it was the most vulgar of places that anybody could go to the cross. And to the Jewish person, Jesus dying on the cross was a sign that he was God forsaken. They were under a curse. What did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? Well, let's listen. Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's in the garden praying. He says, let this cut pass from me. What was the cup that Jesus was going to have to experience? Was it Roman soldier nails? No. It was the full wrath of God coming upon him and our sin coming upon him. So when Jesus becomes obedient to the point of death on the cross, think about the lowest point of humiliation you can think of. He was God in heaven. He voluntarily left that to become a man, not just any... I mean, think about the things that Jesus had to deal with just as a man. Okay, I got to deal with sleep now. I got to deal with getting tired. I got to deal with hunger. I got to deal with, you know, runny noses and colds and I got to deal with other people. I mean, heaven was cool. I had angels that were worshiping me. Now I'm down here with people. And not only that, I came as a servant and not only that, to die a death on the cross. So remember, Paul's illustrating for us this whole idea of humility. Counting others more important than yourself. Serving one another. Being humble. And he says Jesus is the ultimate example. Okay, so at the lowest point of the hymn, there's a shift and it starts moving back up. So we see that in verse 9. Therefore, it starts to move back up. What does God do? God has a decisive action toward His Son. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so number one, where did Je- Jesus was at the lowest point, right? But what does God do through the resurrection? He, he, he lifts him up to the highest point. Where's Jesus now? He's back up in heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's back with all of his full rights and privileges, but how did he have to, what path did he have to go through to get exalted? The path of extreme humiliation. Just a principle in the Christian life. Before we're exalted, usually we have to be humbled. And then he's given what? The name above all names. There's a lot of generic God talk that goes on in our culture, right? You see, 
athletes or movie stars or musicians, like, you know, after a football game, I praise God. Or, you know, a singer says, I give thanks to God. Are they a Christian? I have no idea. But anybody can, because are they talking about Allah? Are they talking about, what I'm listening for is, do they praise Jesus? Because you can say God all you want on TV, but the moment you start saying Jesus, people start getting a little offended. What does Acts 4, 12 say? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. So he's given the name above all names. Only Jesus, you're not saved by just this generic God. It's salvation in Christ alone. It's Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there's a universal confession, but not universal salvation. This is amazing. What does it say? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess. This is a scary thing. That means people in hell will confess Jesus as Lord. Does that mean they're saved? No, it doesn't. It just means that at one point in, his, at one point in the future, there's going to come a day where everybody's going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. For those that are in hell, it's going to be too late. But they're going to, they're going to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. They're just going to hate every minute of having to do it. That's, that's a scary thought to think about. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So it's a universal confession, but not universal salvation. And what's the whole purpose of this? Why, why did Je- what's the whole purpose behind this? Why did Jesus leave heaven, come to earth as a man, become a servant, die on the cross, rise again, be exalted, given the name of, of all names? Why does God do this? What does the very last phrase there say? To the glory of God the Father. God does everything for the purpose of His glory. So Paul's main argument is what? Philippian church... Make my joy complete. Be humble. Be Christ-like. Serve one another. How do you do that? Look to Jesus. Have the same attitude as Jesus. What did Jesus do? He left the glories of heaven. He came that he served. He went to the cross, and God exalted him. Now, obviously, we can't repeat the cross. It's an illustration. But what can we imitate? We can imitate Jesus' attitude. What's the attitude? Verse 5 there says, Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. What's his attitude? I'm going to strip myself of rights. I'm going to serve. I'm going to love. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to look out to the interests of others. I'm going to give myself. That's the attitude we should have as Christians. Giving ourselves. Christ-like humility. Okay? Now, let's talk about gospel-driven sanctification because verses 12 and 13 are very, very interesting. If you had 12 by itself... It would be a hopeless Christian life. So thankfully we have verse 13 to add to it. So let me just read verse 12 by itself and not add verse 13 and, and see how this will be hopeless and helpless. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what are we supposed to do? Not work for, right? We don't work for our salvation, salvation by grace. This is post-salvation. But what does he say? work out your salvation. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Okay, so go do it. Go live it. Do you see how you could be like, ooh, two, two, two pitfalls you can fall into. I can do that. That's easy. Pride. I can't do that. That's not easy. Despair. Both of those are sinful. 
So if all we have is verse, so verse 12 is there, right? We are to live out our Christianity. We are to work out our salvation. We are to put forth effort in the, in the walk of faith, right? But thankfully we have verse 13, which what does it say? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Praise the Lord. How can you do that? Because God works in you. It's God that's working in you. God is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So how can you work out? Because God works in. Does that make sense? So we have a responsibility. So we have, to, we have to walk in a manner worthy. We have to work out our salvation. Uh, let's think of other words we can use here. We've got to grow in grace. We've got to pursue holiness. Whose responsibility is this? This is squarely on our shoulders. You, we have to do this. This is our responsibility. Are we left to ourselves to be able to do that? No, verse 13 says, it is God who works in you to be able to do that. So at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow and there's any success, there's any fruit, there's any advance, there's any progress, who do you owe that to, yourself or to God? God, because he did it in you. Now you did it, right? But why did you do it? Because God did it in you. That gives you great confidence to know that you can live the Christian life because God works in you to do it. Even when you fail, let me just ask you this question. Even when you fail, is God still working? Do you have to, quote, unquote, feel God working to know he's at work? Can God be at work even when you don't sense it? Have you had dry times in your life where you feel like, man, I don't think I ever... Like maybe you even doubt yourself. I don't even know if I'm saved. Or you have times in those life where you're like, I'm just dry spiritually. I'm not walking with the Lord. I, I don't know what's going on. Have you ever had those periods of time? You're like, okay. Does that mean God's not at work? It just means we may not be aware. But he's still working. Because what does Philippians 1, 6 say? I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on. Sometimes we, we may never know what God's doing. We may have to look back a few years and say, oh, in that period of dryness, I may not have sensed God during that period, but he was working. So don't ever doubt that God's not at work. God's always at work. We just not feel it, but he is at work, which gives us great confidence. Okay? All right. Now, here's where it gets fun. We could just stop at verse 14 and leave. Okay, you guys ready? Let me get a drink of water here because this is going to, I'm getting kind of parched. Verse 14. Do all things. Why do you have to say all things, Paul? Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do we believe the Bible? <laughs> what does he say there? Do all things without... How many t- I can tell you who grumbled today. We don't have to raise your hands. It's going to be confession. But how many times do we grumble and we complain? And Paul says, don't do it. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, think about this. This is what Paul's saying if you really want to break it down. You're a witness to a watching world that's wicked. And one of the ways that you're a witness to a watching world is how you don't complain. (laughs) Is that scary or what? Our witness is in our attitude. It goes back to attitude again. Let your attitude be the same as Christ. 
non-Christians look at that and say, what's different about you? If that would have happened to me, I would have been complaining. I would have been grumbling. I wouldn't have joy in that. Well, obviously you wouldn't because you wouldn't say this to them, but you don't go, don't say it back to them. Obviously you wouldn't because you're crooked and depraved and you're part of a twisted generation and I'm holding out the word of life as, and I'm shining like a star. No, but, but what it's saying is that when you don't grumble and complain, you shine like a star. And what does a star do? A star do? It gives off light. And people, what does Matthew 5 say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So one of the ways that you can be an effective witness for Christ is in how you grumble or not grumble, okay? Now that we've been beaten up, let's move to chapter 3, okay? Chapter 3. Chapter 3, the vanity of Paul's resume and the joy of Christ. Paul's going to give his resume. And what do we know about Paul? Let's just talk, what do we know a little bit about Paul? He was a Pharisee. He was a zealot. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. If there was anybody that had the accolades and the resume as a religious man, it was Paul. I mean, he, he, was, he was the poster child for Judaism in that day. And if you were to bring Paul into the synagogue, everybody that was young would be like, that's the guy we want to be like because he's got it all together. He's the man. He's religious. He's moral. He's spiritual. He's learned. He's, got, he's a Pharisee. He's got the right pedigree. He's got the right background. He was trained at the right schools. He is the man. And what does Paul say? Let's look at chapter 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So if anybody wants to put their resume up against me, I, I've got a better resume. So Paul said, i got the best resume here. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. I was the man. But what happened to Paul on his way to Damascus? Well, what happens to you when Jesus shows up in a blinding light knocks you off your horse and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was saved by grace. And everything that Paul lived for came crashing down in one moment. Because what was Paul's life like before? He was there when Stephen was stoned. And Acts tells us that Paul went from house to house like a ravenous wolf, dragging out Christians to be... Paul was on his way to kill Christians when this happened. And Jesus knocked him off his horse and totally reoriented his entire life. And Paul's saying, my whole life, my resume, everything that was before... Listen to what he says about that. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had... I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubalon in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I gave you the word there, scubalon. How do we know Paul experienced a genuine transformation? What does he say? Everything else I had is like crap. And I'm translating that literally, okay? Because that's what the word scubalon means. It means dung. It's a PG-13 version of the word dung. And Paul's basically saying, for lack of the vernacular, my whole life before everything that I put my stock in, it's like crap to me. I'm, I'm being crude because that's how Paul's using it. But Paul says it's for the surpassing worth of what? He says it's because of the surpassing worth of what? 
knowing Christ. So he's got a new passion. God gives us a new passion. When we become a Christian, he gives us a new passion. What's our new passion? It's Christ. Everything that we live for is for Christ. Everything else pales in comparison to the surpassing, the surpassing worth, the glorious worth, the great worth of knowing Jesus. And what does he say there? In order that I may gain Christ. He's got a new priority too. Not only a new passion, I want to, to know Christ, but I want to gain Christ. Now this doesn't mean that Paul was hoping that somehow he'd be saved. You know, I, I want to gain Christ as if he wasn't saved. What he's saying there is that I want to ultimately... Remember what he said, to live as Christ, to die as gain? What Paul's saying is, my ultimate goal in life is ultimately to see Jesus face to face. That's what I live for. That's what every Christian should live for. To, look, to see Jesus face to face one day. And until that day, we, we, we can't see Him now, can we, physically? But Hebrews says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. We, we through prayer and the Word and study... We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, but ultimately we live for that day and we see Him face to face. I think that's Paul's what Paul's saying. But then, not only does God give us a new passion, a new priority, but God gives us a new position. Notice what He says there in verse verse nine: and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what Paul's saying here is that I want to be found in Christ. I want to be in Christ. One of the greatest truths in all the Bible is to be in Christ. This means that we have a dynamic, intimate, spiritual union with Christ. Now, he talks about justification here. Not a righteousness that comes from my own. Can we produce any righteousness in and of ourselves? Question for you. What makes us acceptable to God? Is there anything we bring to the table that makes us acceptable to God? When we have faith, God makes us, Christ makes us acceptable to God because Christ gives us something. What does Christ give us? It says right there, His righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own, not my resume, not all these things that I do. And we have to stop and think about this because I think sometimes as Christians, can we sometimes put our resume up against God and say, well, God, you're bound to bless me because look at me. I mean, I've gone to church. I tithe. I went on a mission trip. I don't yell at my neighbors. I haven't murdered anybody lately. So, so God, look at what I've done. Therefore, God, you're obligated to bless me. Now, you wouldn't say that out loud, would you? But do we sometimes play that game in our minds? God, you need to, God, you need to do this because I've done this. Does God need to do anything because you've done anything? Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Christ gives us His righteousness through faith, and we're not guilty. So justification is that one-time imputed righteousness that comes where we're declared not guilty. But Paul also talks here about sanctification, which sanctification is more the process a believer undergoes as the Spirit of God works in him to make him like Christ. And this, entire, and this goes throughout the entire lifetime. Look at verse um, 10. I, I love verse 10. What is Paul's desire in verse 10? And I pray, I pray this is your desire. That I may know. What does it mean to know Christ? Is there a difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ? I know a little bit about President Obama from what I've read, 
from what I've seen on TV, from some speeches I've heard, from what newscasters, I know about him. Do I know him? No. Do I know about my wife or do I know my wife? I know my wife. Now, some of you ladies I know about and I know you, but I know my wife in a way that I don't know anybody else. And that's what Paul's saying here. I want to have this experiential knowledge that comes through a deep relationship with Christ. I don't want to just know about Christ. I want to know Christ. And it's really the most powerful way you can say that in there. It's, Paul's basically saying, my ultimate passion is to know Jesus. And not only his, know Him, but what does he say? This power. I want to experience this power that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may, and we don't like this one, may share His sufferings. Oh, come on, Paul. You were getting so good. I want to know Jesus. I want to know His power. Why did you have to throw suffering in there? We like to know Jesus. We like the power, but we want to share in the sufferings of Christ? That's radical. What did Paul just say earlier? A point of extreme humiliation to death on a cross. I want to share in his sufferings. But what's Paul's ultimate hope? Verse 11. Complete salvation. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul wants to experience the resurrected body in the very presence of Christ in heaven, which, which we call glorification, the, that one day when he will be completely saved in his new body in heaven, seeing Jesus face to face. Now, is there such a thing as a person who's arrived? Is there such a thing as a person that's completely sanctified and they've got it all together and they, um, they don't have to worry about growing in faith anymore? Not, not, on, not this guy. <laughs> I was, I was um, watching a televangelist one time, flipping through the channels, and, um, and he basically said um, something to the effect of, I don't sin anymore. I don't struggle with sin. And when the devil comes by to bother me, I just say, get away, devil. And he goes, if you struggle with sin, you're not a mature Christian because you shouldn't struggle with sin. I've gotten to the point where I don't sin anymore. And I thought, e. <laughs> right at that moment is when you're about ready to fall flat on your face. Can we say we get to the point where we have no sin, that we've arrived? If anybody could say they've arrived, you think it would have been Paul? Look what he says next. Look what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. I'm not, I'm not there. Doesn't that give you great encouragement? Paul says, I'm not there. I am not there. Praise the Lord that Paul said that because that gives us hope. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. I press on. Okay? Verse 12, this word perfect doesn't necessarily mean um, like the way we think of perfect without, without defect. The word really means full grown, mature. I'm not mature yet. And it's in this tense that really means um, I have not reached a level of completed maturity or absolute perfection. I'm still in the process of growth. I'm still in the growth process. But what do I do? I press on. The word for press on was used of a sprinter who exerted aggressive energy to win a race. I'm going to chase after Jesus. And, he, and Paul's going to use this athletic metaphor here, almost like, Football, if, you, if, if, if you'd help. If you, if you, let's take the football metaphor. When you are a linebacker, you have to know how to what? Sprint to chase down the running back. Or if you're you know, a safety, you know, to chase down the, the wide receiver. 
Paul says, the, the wording that's used here, we, we don't get very good translations in our Bibles, but really in verse 13, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straightening forward ahead, what lies ahead. When it says Jesus Christ made me his own, in the literal language it means Jesus tackled me. Okay? Jesus ran after me and he tackled me. Now let's ask the question, when did Jesus tackle Paul? On the road to Damascus. When did Jesus, and that's a weird imagery to think of Jesus tackling you. When did Jesus tackle you? When did he grab a hold of you? When does it mean to tackle somebody? You grab a hold of them and you bring them down. That's kind of what Jesus does in our salvation, doesn't he? He takes our sin. He takes us. We're running on ourselves. He tackles us. He brings us down and he holds us and changes us. Why does Jesus, why was Paul blinded on the Damascus? Why, why are we saved? Well, to bring glory to God. But ultimately, we are saved from, we're saved from hell and from wrath, but what are we saved to? What does Romans 8.29 say? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why are we saved? To be conformed to the image of Jesus, to look more and more like Jesus. So why does Paul want to know Jesus? So he can look more and more like Jesus. And so Paul uses this play on words here. Jesus Christ tackled me, so I want to turn around and tackle Him. I want to run after Jesus. He's made me His own. My goal in life is now to go back and just grab a hold of Jesus. That, that's the imagery that he's, he's using here. Not that I've already attained to this, but my, I'm like a running back or, or, or a linebacker running to get a hold of Jesus. And that's my goal. I'm pressing on. I'm, I want more of Jesus. I want to grab a hold of Him. And Paul says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Uh, verse 13. I forget the past. I forget the past. Forgetting what lies behind and straightening forward to what, what, what lies ahead. I forget the past. Some Christians live in the past and they let their past define their present. And we need to be very careful here. As Christians, should we remember our past? In the sense that, is it wise to remember what Christ saved us out of? Yes. But is that where we want to stay? It's appropriate to remember the sin in the sewer from which Christ saved us. But if we always go back to who we used to be, are we moving ahead? What does Paul say? Forgetting what's behind. I mean, yes, that was a part of who I was. Christ saved me out of that. I praise God that he took me out of that. But my, I'm not living there. He says, forgetting what's behind, I strain ahead toward what's ahead. I'm looking at the prize. I'm looking at the finish line. Another, another running metaphor. I'm sprinting towards the finish line. I go towards the goal. What does he say there? Um, I press on, verse 14. I press on or I strain toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word um, strain toward the goal was a runner stretching every ounce of their muscles to the limit. I press on. I pursue aggressively. And what's the prize? What's the ultimate prize? It's Christ. What are you more looking forward to? Streets of gold and pearly gates and no sickness and no tears or Jesus. 
I think some people look forward to heaven, but they don't look forward to Jesus. Can, can you have both? Yes, you have both, but ultimately, where should our gaze be? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And as great as heaven's going to be, it's not heaven if Jesus isn't there. I think John Piper said it this way. I'm paraphrasing him. If you could, have, if you could go to heaven and have um, no tears, no pain, no crying, all the friends you ever wanted, all the food you ever wanted, all the enjoyment you ever wanted, all the blessings you ever wanted, everything was at your disposal, but Jesus wasn't there, would you be satisfied? And he says, I think for most Americans, they would say yes. Which is, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was a, a startling indictment upon what, what, what we're thinking about here. So Paul here, now, think, now just keep thinking about where Paul is when he's doing this. He's in prison, right? Now let's go to chapter 4 as we kind of wind up here. Joy in prayer. Okay, he's talked about joining the gospel, being Christ-like, um, growing in grace, straining toward the goal, forgetting what's behind. Um, we, we talked about how this is the, the book of joy. Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it just in case you didn't get it. Rejoice. So he tells us twice. Rejoice, rejoice. Have joy, have joy. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about prayer here, isn't he? What does he say? Do not be anxious. Wow. How often are we as Christians anxious? I know I'm anxious about a lot of things. It's, it's human nature to be anxious. But what does he say? Do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Give it over to God. Talk to God about it. Give your request to God. And what's God going to do? Verse 7, the peace of God, which we really, we really don't understand. How many of you have ever ha- prayed about something that you're really worried about, and God just gave you a peace. And you didn't quite understand it, but it was there. I think that's what Paul's saying here. And what's it going to do? It's going to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Now, that word guard is an interesting word. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's turn to Matthew um, 6, 25. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount real quick, because Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 6. It's, it's too long to put up there on the screen, so let's just actually look at it. Uh, Matthew six twenty five. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, 
saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How many times did Jesus say the word anxious? I didn't count it up, but I mean, you can tell. He said, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. God is going to take care of you. God knows what you need. If God, if God can give the sparrows something to eat, and God brings water to the lilies, and that's a sparrow, and that's you're a person. You're, you're so much more valuable to God. How much more valuable? And that's what Paul's saying here. Don't be anxious, and this peace of God will guard. That word guard was used of a military term. It implied that peace stands on duty to keep out anything that brings care or anxiety. In Christ Jesus. Now, I think verse 8 is intrinsically linked to the verse right before it. Finally, brothers... Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, keep on continually thinking about these things. So joy and pure thinking. Think deeply upon things that are going... So I was thinking about this this morning when I was in the shower. Weird thoughts come to me when I'm in the shower. Not weird thoughts, they're biblical thoughts, I think. Most sin starts where? In your mind, you think about something and you're like, oh, wow, where'd that thought come from? And you're shocked that you begin. And then what happens if you begin to think on it more? Then you're like, oh, I think I may actually do this or engage in this. And my mind starts wandering. So what does Paul say here? The battle starts in your mind. So what should we be continually thinking upon? Glorious, good, worthy, praiseworthy things. That means the things that we fill our minds and our heart with are to be wholesome and pure. And I think that the more that we, th- the more that we think about those things, and maybe the less anxious we'll be. Think continually upon those things. Now let's just kind of finish up here. Joy and contentment. Again, remember, where's Paul? Paul is in prison. So let's look at verses 10 through 13. Here's another famous passage of Scripture that most people have memorized from Philippians. I rejoiced, there's the joy word there, in the Lord greatly, this is verse 10, that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, that's a key word there, in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul has learned to be content. What is contentment? It's kind of like peace. Contentment is I'm satisfied with where I am in life right now. I know God is sovereign over my life. And I'm not going to be anxious. I'm not going to be trying to to be something I'm not. If God blesses me, I'm content. If I'm brought low, I'm content. If I'm in prison, Paul, I'm content. If I win the lottery, I'm I'm content. I've learned the secret of being content. Contentment is something we have to learn. And then Paul says, what? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that's a, that's a blanket um, verse we use oftentimes to say, you know, I, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And, and yes, we can. But in context, what he's talking about? It's the contentment. 
I can be content. I can have this contentment in whatever happens to me because of Christ Jesus and his, his grip upon my life. Now, let's, let's just wrap Philippians back up. How did it start in verse 6 of chapter 1? I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion. So Paul weaves this whole theme of God's going to carry it through. God's going to carry it through. I can be joyful. I can be content. I can be humble. I can be Christ-like. I can work out my salvation. I can get along with other believers. I can um, forget what's behind and strain toward what's ahead because Christ is working in me to do this. And then um, he finishes up his, his letter there. Um, verse 23, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's usually how he... Grace and peace to you. He usually finishes up like that. So Philippians is the letter of joy. Paul probably had a, a fondness for this church that he didn't have for maybe... I mean, he loved all the churches except for maybe the Galatian church. I mean, he loved them, but he was pretty harsh with the Galatian church. But you see this... You see the spiritual maturity of a man in prison that's learned to be joyful and content. And it all boils down to, to for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. So... That's Philippians. Any questions in the last four or five minutes we've got? It's a good little fun book. It's an encouraging book. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, as Nehemiah tells us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And as Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you humbled yourself to be obedient to death on a cross, that we might have life and that we can look at your example and be inspired to humbly serve one another. And that, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the one who started the work in us and you will carry it on to completion, that we know that you're in work in us right now and that, that you don't leave us or forsake us, that you're in us and that um, we can do all things through you who strengthens us. So, Lord, give us that contentment. Give us that joy. I pray for those in this class, this room tonight, that what they face even tonight as they go home and the rest of the week, uh, the joy of the Lord would be their strength and that our anthem, Lord, to you would be for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.